Jesus Christ Superstar, the album was released in 1970. I was a teenager growing up in a solidly conservative, evangelical, and reformed home, church, and Christian school community. It was a pretty closed but healthy bubble. I learned a lot of theology growing up, and it was pretty straightforward. It was pretty clear. It was super important, and most of all, it was right. Superstar blew my mind, as we might have said in that time. It was a totally different perspective on Jesus, presented in what remains to this day my favorite musical medium, classic rock. You may remember these words from the hit single, Superstar, that we listened to on the radio. And these are words of Judas to Jesus. Every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why'd you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? If you'd come today, you would have reached the whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Did you mean to die like that? Was that a mistake? Or did you know your messy death would be a record breaker? Don't get me wrong. I only want to know. Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? My formal theological education focused on learning about the Bible and how to understand it. Most of that education was framed in the context of what is called historical, biblical, or textual criticism, which gained prominence in the 19th century, particularly in Germany. This criticism posed questions about the reliability of the biblical text that we have. Think of questions like, did Moses write the first five books of the Bible? How many authors did the book of Isaiah have? Did creation happen in six 24-hour days? Did the walls of Jericho really collapse? And was there a fish that swallowed Jonah? On top of those questions came the questions about Jesus. Did he really exist? What did he really say? Is there a Jesus of history And is there a Jesus of faith, and how do these two relate to each other? And my theological education equipped me to oppose those questions and refute them. About a hundred years ago, in a response to this criticism movement, fundamentalism arose. Fundamentalism insisted on the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible, which led to conflict with the culture of the time, which was moving from revelation as the basis of knowledge to science as the basis of knowledge. This became public door uh, through what you probably know and remember as the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, which pitted the biblical case for creation against the evolutionary view, and whether and how these, these views were to be taught and presented in the public schools. 
As the 20th century moved on, the evangelical movement arose and grew. Evangelicals, like the fundamentalists, focused on the theological fundamentals, but placed more emphasis on the call to the church to engage in society rather than isolate itself from it, which the fundamentalists tended to do. Post-World War II, things seemed to be going swimmingly. A high percentage of Americans attended church, considered themselves Christians, and had the idea that America was a Christian nation. The words under God were added to the Pledge of Allegiance in the 50s. We had our Christian schools, and we were gaining influence in the public and political life of America. Then the 60s and 70s happened. Civil rights, the Vietnam War, women's liberation, the sexual revolution, classic rock and roll, drugs, riots. The fabric of society seemed to be tearing. People were leaving the traditional church and faith, some never to return, others to form the Jesus people or the Jesus movement, inspired by people like rocker Larry Norman with his song, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music and Jesus is the Rock and He Rolled My Sins Away. As we rolled on into the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, evangelicals became more active in society and politics. The segregation battle focused on government control over our schools, but there was also the issue of abortion, militarism, explicit support for war, and even explicit support among evangelicals for the use of torture. Homosexuality, Christian nationalism, American exceptionalism, and America first became important issues. In the culture wars fueled by conservative television and radio media, evangelicals became more and more involved in politics, actively throwing their support behind political candidates at every level who would promote their causes and defend them from attacks on their, on their moral positions and freedom to exercise their beliefs in society. The last decade or 15 years, as you all know, has seen temperatures rising and polarization reaching more deeply into our society, even into nuclear families, including and perhaps even especially in the evangelical world. In addition, the failure of the evangelical churches to deal with racism and creation care, as well as the exposure of religious and sexual abuse in the churches, including some of its most prominent leaders, think of Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, and Bill Gothard, has disillusioned many. This disillusionment has led many evangelicals, or as they're now called, ex-evangelicals, 
to a process called deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard that word. The term is applied to the process of questioning, doubting, and ultimately rejecting aspects of traditional evangelical Christian faith, especially around questions as, what is the Bible? How does it function? Who was Jesus? And what the essence of Jesus' message and work is. All the way to, when the Bible speaks of the gospel, what does it really mean? You may remember Josh Harris, famous for his book of the 90s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which sold millions of copies. He wrote it when I believe, I believe he was 21. It sold millions of copies and influenced a whole generation of parents and children. A few years ago, he stopped publication of the book, citing his regret at the message it presented and the harm that it had caused. Shortly after he stopped publication of the book, he and his wife divorced, and shortly after that, he renounced his Christian faith entirely as a recent example of public deconstruction. I've been through a process of deconstruction also. It started almost 40 years ago with a book by, and this will probably surprise most of you, a Christian Reformed pastor. His name was Neil Punt. The book was called Unconditional Good News Toward an Understanding of Biblical Universalism which actually is more about inclusivism than universalism. Other authors of influence for me were and are Frederick Buechner, Robert Capon, Walter Wangren, Henri Nouwen, Eugene Peterson, Leslie Newbigin, N.T. Wright, and others, as well as many conversations, usually over a beer, with all kinds of different people. My journey continued through my years of ministry in Amsterdam where the theology that I had learned, somehow I couldn't match with the reality of what I was actually experiencing on the ground in ministry. And that ended up, as you all, I believe, know, in an emotional, psychological, physical, and theological crisis. And when I say physical crisis, I mean that literally. For a period of about a year and a half, maybe it was even two years, I would get an actual physical tingling and pain sensation in my skin when I went to church, listened to worship music, or had anything to do with anything connected with my religious background. So I know what it's like to deconstruct. The question is, does deconstruction leave you with anything? I came across recently a pastor whose name is A.J. Swoboda, and he just published a book called After Faith, How to Doubt Your Faith Without Losing It. And I quote him from a recent podcast. He says, some are undoing their faith, Because secretly, behind the closed doors of their hearts, 
They want to sleep with whom they want to sleep with. They want to do what they want to do. They want to do their own thing. And I need to leave God in order to be free to do what I want to do. Others are saying, I love God. I love Jesus with all my heart. I will do anything to follow Jesus. But I was handed some really bad ideas about God and Jesus. Those ideas do not reflect Jesus or the Bible, and I'm going to be done with them. And then Swoboda adds, another word for that is repentance. There is a caveat here. Some people have been deeply hurt and abused by the church. It's not just as black and white as those two choices. These wounds that are real need to be honestly acknowledged and worked through. It's no solution to say, well, just go back to the church. But just because the church may have deeply hurt us doesn't mean we walk away from God. Because every single institution on earth, it doesn't matter what institution or organization or group of people it is, has the potential to damage and hurt. Deconstruction, or repentance, when it doesn't lead us away from God, leads us to Jesus. It is Jesus, after all, who makes us Christian. Not the fact that we have a holy book or that we have a religious community or that we do good deeds of charity in our world. There are all kinds of organizations that do that. What makes us Christian is that Jesus is at our center. Brian Zond, who pastors Word of Life Church in Missouri, is releasing a book called When Everything is on Fire. It's going to be released in November, and I wanted to show you two quotes. Actually, it's, it's a continuation quote from him from this book. More than a few modern minds are offended by the idea that the Logos of God, or Jesus, became particular flesh in a particular place at a particular moment in history. The idea that God entered history and joined the human race uniquely through Jesus of Nazareth with all its particularities offends the more pantheistic and perhaps more palatable idea that God is all things. But this offense, if it is an offense, is an inherent aspect of Orthodox Christianity. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I, for one, says Zond, am not offended by this scandal of particularity. I'm particularly partial to Jesus Christ. In response to the robust eschatology of the New Testament, I am universal in my robust hope that all creation will be redeemed, and I am particular in my confession that this redemption is accomplished in Christ. And I'm giving all this background, and you're probably wondering, what the heck? <laughs> because it's possible that there are among those of us who are listening, those who are disillusioned, perhaps we're deconstructing, 
Perhaps we're sick of the whole thing. Or perhaps what we've learned isn't meshing with our world anymore and it's causing us stress and strain. Perhaps we don't know in this, in this, as we move into hopefully a post-COVID period, what is our Christian faith going to look like? And what I want to say is, as we go through those processes, which we need to go through, we want to come out by this particular person of Jesus Christ. That's where we want to end up. We want to end up by Jesus. And that's why I've chosen this fall to use as a basis for our sermons between now and Advent this book called Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus by Diana Butler Bass. She writes about six Jesuses who have stood out through her lifetime to her. Jesus as friend, teacher, savior, Lord, way, and presence. And she asks us, and this is the question of this fall, who is Jesus for you? Who is your Jesus? Or as Jesus himself said to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? Personally, I don't find that an easy question to answer. I've mentioned before from this pulpit that my first real experience with Jesus, like an experience and not just something I knew, occurred during my teenage years. In the moments when I was dropping off, at, off to sleep at night, and I realized in those moments, those last moments of wakefulness and consciousness and moving into unconsciousness or whatever the right word is, I was totally alone. There was nobody who, who could go through this phase with me. And at the risk of sounding morbid, I also connected that with the time of death. The moment in which you're drawing your last breath, there is no other person who can do that with you. It doesn't matter how long you've been married and how much the two of you love each other. That Your partner can't do that with you. You are alone. Or are you? And I realized and I felt that in that moment, I was not alone. And I would never be alone. Whether it's that moment every night, or whether it's that final moment of this life on earth, I am not alone. Jesus is with me. And that experience remains as experience the bedrock of my faith up until today. I'm not a person who walks and talks with Jesus in the garden. I don't find that I daily have a personal relationship with him. It's much easier for me to understand Jesus as teacher or as savior or as Lord than as friend or presence. It's due largely, I believe, to whom I am, who I am as a person, how God has created me, and the particular background and instruction that I have. If I were to write a chapter for this book, and I've asked myself this question, because this book only has six chapters, if I were to write a chapter, what would I call it? And at least one chapter I would write would have the title Reconciler. 
Jesus is for me primarily the one through whom God is reconciling all things to himself. And I'm rediscovering what it is like to understand Jesus as the great reconciler, while at the same time learning about all the other ways in which Jesus relates to me and to others. And I would also say that one of the primary ways that I meet Jesus is through other people. I take the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25 very seriously. As you have done this to others, you have done this to me. As people around me relate to me and extend grace and extend friendship and extend connection and sometimes even salvation, I see and experience Jesus. And as I try to serve others in the imperfect and weak ways in which I do that, I meet Jesus. What I'm trying to say with all this is, as we go through this series and go through this book, I don't want you to feel like you're being pressed into a mold. Like there's a certain way you have to experience and understand Jesus. A certain way that's right. The Bible gives us, especially the New Testament, pictures and stories about Jesus. It's not a systematic theology book. It's not a science book. And the church, as the hands and feet of Jesus, lives out what Jesus is like. So my goal as we go through this series, again, is not to push you into a particular way of thinking. It is to challenge you, to offer new perspectives, to perhaps, to perhaps help you shed some ideas that are not helpful. And rediscover who Jesus is for you and for the church, including, as we move out of COVID, our community here at Trinity. I hope as we go through this book and through this series that it will turn you more toward Jesus rather than away from him. So who is Jesus? The Apostle John records seven I am statements of Jesus that are designed to paint a portrait of who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. And what John does here brilliantly is he gives us a a banquet table, a buffet table of images, of portraits. This is not systematic theology. These are pictures. These are feelings. These are things that are designed to enlighten us and move us and encourage us and give us hope. Which of these portraits speaks to you? Do you need today bread? Do you need nourishment that doesn't come from the meal you're going to have this afternoon? That it, it's a deeper, do you need a deeper kind of nourishment? Do you need some truth? 
in this time in which we live, do you need some truth? Perhaps you need some resurrection. Perhaps there are parts of your life or our lives together that are dead, that just aren't working, or that are leading us into an evil, dark place, a dead place. Perhaps you need some resurrection. Or perhaps like this bunch of grapes that's connected to the vine, you need a source of new life and encouragement. New energy to do what God has called you to do. Perhaps you need light upon your way. Perhaps your way is particularly dark because of sorrow or illness. Or you don't know what the future holds. Or maybe the past is dark. And you need some light shed on that. And maybe you need a shepherd. This wonderful image of God and Jesus who leads us beside the still waters, uh, leads us in the paths of righteousness to these green pastures. And when we're lost, He leaves the 99 and goes out and finds us and carries us home in His arms. Which of these images do you need today or at this time in your life? In her introduction, Diana Butler Bass says this, This book is an exercise in memory, remembering then with all the nostalgia, sorrow, and joy that memory summons. And I look back and I see my life, all the developments that have happened. And there are the joys, and there are the sorrows, and there are the things I think I wish, I wish this hadn't happened, and I'm glad this happened. And Jesus was in it all. So it's a call to exercise our memories, to not forget the past, not say it was all nothing, or all bad, but remember it as it was. It's also an exercise in now, taking the lessons once learned, learning the lessons of now, and applying them to today, to our time, to our place. And it's an exercise in can be, having a certain confidence to keep on the way in the midst of even radical changes. And we can only look back, we can only look honestly at today, and we can only have hope for the future if that's all rooted in Jesus Christ, the only, son, the only begotten Son of God, who because God loved the world, was sent so that we might have life and life abundantly even in the brokenness in which we find ourselves and my hope and my prayer is that in the next weeks we will discover and rediscover this Jesus again in ways that will challenge us 
ways that might change our thinking, but most of all, ways that will encourage us and give us hope and keep us moving to become more and more like Him as we go through our life here in 2021. Amen.